Well, welcome to Calvary Chapel. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Please open your Bibles to Romans. We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning. Now, our passage this morning, as we're going to go through, we'll get to about uh, chapter 3, verse 8. God has a lot to say to us, specifically for the times we're living in. Because up to this point, if you think of we've been following, sort of going along in Romans here, God, specifically in chapter 1, he dealt with the unrighteous, right? Very, you know, sort of right out of the gate. And then after the unrighteous, he turned his sort of eyes towards, you might say in chapter 2, the self-righteous. You know, those that believe they are a good person and therefore must be saved because they're a good person, right? They, they do good things. And Paul's made his case through God, you know, God's made his case through Paul, excuse me, and, and says, no, you know, you can, you can be a moralist all you want. That's not going to save you. You're not going to be justified by that because the wages of sin is death. And then as we've continued on, and he, he's now bringing us to the fact that creation testified. He says, look, everything, my gospel, everything that is and would be, creation all testifies to that. He says, don't worship um, the creation, worship the creator. And then he took us to chapter 2, verse 15. He says, if that wasn't enough, he says, you also have a conscience that I've given you, and everyone has been given a measure of faith. And within that conscience, that is what's going to bear witness, he says, if you look in your scripture. It says it will bear witness between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or else excusing. And just think about that for a minute. The, the, the consciousness or the conscience of the unbeliever, when standing before the living God, their own conscience is going to betray them. Their own conscience is going to bear witness to the fact that they look to themselves for justification, rather than the one who is the just and the justifier. Just think about that for a minute. That's why it's important. Today is the day of salvation. If you have not made a decision for Jesus Christ, if you have not received him as your Lord and Savior, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We will stand before him in perfect majesty. And our own conscience is going to bear witness. That's heavy. That's sobering. Share that with your friends, your loved ones. You know, let them know there is no escape that way. And then we're going to read today in chapter 3 where he's going to say, even his word, the oracles of God, the very word of God he's given us, which testifies to Jesus, to Messiah, that much is given, much is required. And today we have his holy word that testifies to his truth, to who he is. We're without excuse. There is no excuse. So as we turn our hearts, we turn our focus, he's now going to pick up, like I said, he's looked at the unrighteous, he's looked at the self-righteous, now he's going to turn his eyes and his gaze to the religious. To the religious, specifically the Jew, who held on to the law and their national identity as their source where they believed they were saved. And he's going to say a religious person isn't saved. No, it's not religion, it's relationship with Jesus Christ, Amen. Let's bow and pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you, and Lord, just as you've overheard in your word, God, we, we want to have the right hearts here this morning to hear this, to receive. Lord, if there's any, anything in our hearts, God, anything that we've been holding on after, Lord, you're, you're after a circumcised heart. You've never been after a, a legalism or a Pharisaic religion, Lord. As a matter of fact, you're going to tell us ultimately that's a form of blasphemy, God, to, to worship a work-based mentality rather than faith and justification through the only one, through belief in you, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. God, thank you for redeeming us as your children. And God, we pray for the lost, those that are um, 
in the world, God, those that have been looking to themselves. Maybe they were self-righteous. Maybe they're unrighteous, God. Maybe they're even religious. And God, they've been being steered by a, a doctrine or dogma of man. God, we pray that you would set your captives free here this morning. Lord, that you would have your perfect work in our hearts. God, thank you for being faithful to never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for being faithful to always teach your truth, even if, Lord, it means conviction in our hearts, even if it means change. God, reach into us right now, Jesus. Do that transformation that only you can do, Jesus, because we can't do it ourselves. We need you right now, Lord. We're ready, God, to hear what your spirit has to say. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. All right. Verse 17. Indeed, chapter 2 of Romans, verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew. And again, this could be uh, put, put in your denomination there. You are called a religious person. I mean, specifically, he's talking to the Jew. But I don't want this just to be uh, extrapolated to the Jew. I want this to be to anyone that puts a religion in the place of a relationship with Christ. He says, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. Just think about that. He changes his tone here. He says, he says you know what? Yeah, you, you think you're a guide to the blind. You, you think you have this light. But you're an instructor to the foolish. A teacher to babes. Those that have no meat, no substance, but only milk. Having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So he starts out with 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew. Every boast the Jewish man in this passage here has, it's all about concerning the law. And the Jewish people of Paul's day were extremely proud and confident in the fact that God gave his holy law to them as a nation. It was part of their nationalistic identity. It was how they were identified. Even today in Israel, we look at the Jew, you know, we pray for them as we should, as, as Genesis 12 says, and we understand that they hold on to that law and that law they believe because of the Abrahamic covenant that was given. They believe that is what justifies them. The law. But Paul's going to make a point and say, but it's not enough, as he already said earlier. Do you remember in verse 13 of chapter 2? He says, for not the hearers of law are just in the sight of God. Paul's already dealt with this. He says, but what? But the doers of the law will be justified. If one could perfectly keep the law. That's a big big if. And Paul's going to later on tell us no one. In chapter 3, he says no one can do this. But, but to them, the, whole, the law identified them. It, it was their national identity, and they, they believed it, it confirmed their, their place as a chosen people of God. They believed the law is what did that. It ensured their salvation. Okay? I, I can tell you those that have gone to Israel or maybe somebody here has ever gone on a trip to Israel, and you go over with Calvary Chapel every year or, you know, you know, twice a year, sometimes twice every couple of years, however we do it, you go over to Calvary Chapel and there's a, inevitably a bus we all get on and you get on the bus and we stop and we get off and I'll open the word and we would teach at each place we would go through and, and open the word of God as we, we see these things because it literally just obviously comes to life right off the pages. Being in Israel is a beautiful, beautiful time. But I can remember, you know, hearing the story of, of, of one of the travel guides that's with you. And most often it's a Jewish man. They live there in Israel, obviously. And he's usually a born again believer in Christ. 
But a lot of times people are coming in and you have times where you're driving. It might be 20 minutes or 30 minutes in between stops as you're going to your next stop. And so you're on the bus and a lot of times you're singing worship songs and it's just a beautiful time. People are wrecked. They're crying. They're, they're just like, oh man, I can't believe we're in Jerusalem. I can't believe we're seeing where Jesus Christ walked. I mean, it was, it was just awesome. Well, while well, they're on the experience and they're going, they, they a lot of times will look at the guide and they'll say, hey, you know, you, we've been with you for like five days already, you know, because usually it's an 11 day trip. We've been with you for five days. When did, you, when did you learn about God? And usually being Jewish, oh, no, no, no. In this particular account, I can remember. No, I, we always knew about God. I'm a Jew. I always had God. It's not like the Gentiles, not like you Gentiles. So you Gentiles didn't know God. I, I always knew God. I was misdirected. I, I, simply, I simply wasn't worshiping the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Messiah, Yeshua. But I, but I was misdirected. But I always had God. I always had the oracles of God. Now, clearly you can hear that, and, and I'm certainly not indicting the man for saying, but what does that sound? Doesn't that sound like a nationalistic identity tied within that? And what does that, in that example I just gave, what was the very thing he referenced? His national identity taught by the law and God's chosen people. So much so that he ties it back with justification, even for the believer. But he turns around and comes back later and says, no, 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 I'm a and he doesn't use a word of messianic Jew. They don't, they don't do that there. What he says is, I'm a completed Jew. What does that mean? That means that he's received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and therefore now complete. And that's how he would say He says, but you Gentiles, he says, you had to learn about who God was. And, and, and so, you know, it's just a different way. And you can kind of laugh, and you don't certainly want to. It wasn't meant to be a, a, a negative or a, a kind of a dig, but it's just that nationalistic pride or identity. So I think of that, that's who Paul's speaking to. The religious man like that, that, that his identity in Israel is tied to his salvation somehow, right? So verse 20, it says, having the form of knowledge, and again, this, this point is having the knowledge of the law justifies no one. As we just read, actually, it says that they were what? That, he, that they become an instructor of what? fools or foolishness. That, that's what he says here. He says it because they, they act as instructors of foolishness. Look at verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God, man, he lays it down hot. Underline this in your Bible. He lays this down hot right now. For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. And what's it mean, as it is written? He's speaking to something that must already have been there, or something that was taught. Can you imagine the Jew of that day? You're in Rome. This letter's just come to you from the apostle Paul, right? You're hearing this. You're a Jewish Christian. You're, you're, you know, your national identity, you're, you're rallying behind that. And all of a sudden, Boom, he just laid it out hot. That when you draw people away from the grace of God to some type of legalism or Judaizing, what are you doing? You're actually what? Blaspheming. You're blaspheming God to the Gentile. Did you ever think about that? He says one gospel. And that gospel is not up for twisting or manipulation. It's one gospel and it's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And it's by what? faith. He already made that clear. How do we know it's by faith? I'm glad you asked. Turn back to chapter 1, look at verse 16 and 17. What does he say again? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of who? 
of Christ. That's not his name. That's his title, Savior. For it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and for also the Greek. Now do you know why he was so particular in there? For the Jew first and for the Greek. What is he saying? For everyone. For all. It doesn't matter what your religious affiliation or denomination or any of that is. He's saying it has nothing to do with it. It's by faith and faith alone. Do you see the power of that? That's amazing. And as we read it, as he's been building this case and building this argument, as he comes back, he says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You know, it, it comes down to the principle. You have the law, but have you kept the law? Are you just a hearer of the law or are you a doer of the law? Because if you're just a hearer of the law, you're what? You're unrighteous. You have no righteous. Because where does your righteousness need to come from? But from Jesus alone. If you're relying on a law, which you can't keep to justify you, your own conscience did what? It just betrayed you. It found you guilty before the living God. Do you see what Paul is is doing here? Do you see, are you tracking with me? Are you seeing the case that he's bringing? Everybody, I mean, everybody, anybody you know that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he just basically took the whole world in a matter of what, uh, 25 to, you know, 20 or something in this case, 24 verses, and he basically condemned the whole world under sin. Not the Jew, not the Gentile, not the religious, not the unrighteous, not the self-righteous, not the moralist. No one. No one can escape the wrath of God because we all fall short of the glory of God. Just think about that for a minute. That's why we don't come in here and play church. That's why we don't come in here and say we've arrived. None of us have arrived. It's when we accept Christ that we receive our new nature, it says in the Bible. We're going to read that in Romans. And when we receive his righteousness, it was imputed to us. It was given to us that way, that Christ sees us now in that identity, no longer in our own. Does everybody understand that spiritual transaction that took place on that cross? And then when we accepted Christ, the spiritual transaction that took place in our hearts with our soul and spirit, we're blood bought. It's not to be taken for granted. You know, God wants all our hearts. I always say we're not in the time, he's not in the timeshare business. He wants all of our hearts. And doesn't he deserve that? Because who can be justified apart from faith in Christ? And the answer, everyone, no one. No one. There you go. Four years of seminary. Done. Right? God made it so simple. You have the law, but did you keep it? You can see your sin on others, but do you see your own sin in the same light? You see, the rabbinic Judaism of Paul's day interpreted the law to say that they were completely justified by the law. That's what they were being taught. They were being lied to. And we see the same thing today from pulpits all across America where men stand up and they tell people that you can do this, you can do that, and you can be saved. 
when it's one thing and one thing alone, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. It's not Jesus plus something. Jesus is everything. And it's the doctrine that we're going to see in these last days. It says that there will be those that will fall away, and they're going to be looking for another doctrine, a tickling of an ear. They're going to be chasing it. Friends, don't let that be you. Stay in the word of God. This is your compass. This is your instruction manual. This is God's love poured out to you and I so that we don't wander. It draws us back. He keeps us, he keeps us aligned. He renews our hearts. He washes our mind. He cleanses us from the evil of the world and the wickedness and striving of every day. Many of you work a job. Most of you do in here. It's not easy, is it? You go into your workplace and you hear a lot of profane language. You hear a lot of things that, that don't align with what you believe in Scripture. And you're told to be tolerant. And you're told if you don't do that, then you're not politically correct. And that you're a hater. And soon it's going to be called a hate crime when you turn around and stand for righteousness. Because you call sin, sin, and you don't call it stuff. And you don't mince words, and you don't try to hide it and sweep it you know, under the carpet. Do you realize we're living in those days? I don't know how much time we have, friends. We, we got to stand on God's truth. We got to follow God alone, even if we're the only ones. Is every, are all of you here prepared for that? That if you were the only one to walk with Christ, if everyone walked away, are you prepared to walk with Christ alone? That's our calling and election. Make your calling and election sure. Are you an apostle? Are you a disciple? Better put, if apostle sent one. I don't mean it in the, the way that some of the TV evangelists try to use the term. I mean it in the correct biblical way. Are, are you a disciple? Are you a sent one? If you're a born-again believer in Christ, let me make it simple. Yes, you are. And you've already got your marching orders. Matthew chapter 28, 19, you were given a great commission. Well, Paul is saying, look, that's the only way you can be justified. Now, think about how, think about how wrong they had gotten this. So much so that when Jesus Christ himself physically came to earth, right, 2,000 years ago, Matthew chapter 5, he was on the Sermon on the Mount. And what did he do? He went through and helped them understand where they were isogening, right? That means to read into. Ex, exo means in the Greek, pulling out of. Exegeting, exo, out of. When they're pulling out of, right? He says, let me help you understand. He said, when you turn around and you think of anger in your heart, you know what you're guilty of? Murder. Well, that's fundamentally different than anything they understood under the law. What was Jesus Christ very pointedly trying to tell them? Because everything for them was an outward act. Think about it. Circumcision, ceremonial laws, everything for them was outward as a sign or a testament that way. Think about that. That was understood under Judaism. That was their universe or understanding, nationalistic identity. Now Christ comes and says, oh, by the way, it's not even the things you see, but it's the things you don't. It's not only what you do, but it's even the motive of your heart. Think back to 2.15 again. Romans 2.15 when he says your conscience will either accuse you or excuse you. Even the motives of your heart, Christ hermeneutically tells us, will be weighed and measured. Right? Paul's not only pointing out to the hypocrisy here of the Jew of that day. What was he pointing out? He's pointing out there's no spiritual entitlement. 
There's no such thing as a, a one's religious affiliation that puts them somewhere in a, a better light with God. It's not like if you're a Calvary chaplainite, if I use that term, God's going to turn around and say to you, oh yeah, come to the front. You know, I joked with first service. I said, no, you know where you'll end up? Probably in the back, man. You know what? He'll be like, you hippies, get back there, you know, with your jeans, right? That's what he'll probably say to us, me in particular, right? I'll just be glad I'm there, man. Praise the Lord, right? Amen. No. What, what, what? There's no entitlement because of a religious affiliation. It's only belief in Jesus. He, this is important for anybody that's focused on religion. And again, pick your religion out there. I mean, I grew up Roman Catholic, okay, but there's people that are, you know, Muslim, there's people that are Buddhist, there's Taoist. I mean, pick your religion. I, I don't care. Fill in the blank. When you begin to follow something, a tradition of man that elevates itself in an equally or equality to Christ and his word and his heart and what he's given us, specifically, what have you just committed? He said it was blasphemous. He goes, for the name of God is blasphemy among, among the Gentiles because of you. Because you've drawn them a what? Away from Christ. You didn't draw them to Christ. You didn't say it was Jesus alone. No, what you did is you said, light a candle, y'all. And by the way, do this. And you'll be in esteem with God. Now, we're going to read here as we move down to 25, verse 25 in a little bit. He's going to talk about circumcision. Paul's going to say the irrelevance of circumcision, specifically as an outward act. But what about baptism? There are denominations around the world today that teach by being baptized, you're saved. That's not a scriptural teaching. Jesus Christ said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, the gospel of Christ, justification by Faith and faith alone. There is nothing else, no other sacrament or ordinance that has anything to do with salvation. Sanctification is a different story. Living out your life, walking it out. Okay. But that has nothing to do with salvation because Christ did the work lest any man could what? Boast. This is what he's trying to help the religious man here because religion can be a trap. Religion is not the same thing as relationship. It can be a trap. And it's a, I said in first service, I was talking to the guy, I said, you know what? The, the, the thing that challenges us through this the most is that it's you know, diabolical. And listen, what, you know, what do you mean? It's intentional. It's no different than, it's just as intentional as when Satan worked to get the Bible out of schools, when Satan worked to get the prayer out of schools. That was very intentional. That didn't just happen. When now we have middle school and high school classes meeting today, that come in and someone will come in from a health or a Planned Parenthood. Oh, by the way, this just happened in a public school around here. They will come in from Planned Parenthood and they will begin to sit down with your son or daughter and they will tell them that they can question their gender and their identity. In middle school, that's okay. But when we give the love of Christ, well, no, you've crossed the line. That's an offense. Why is it an offense? Because it speaks to the truth. And the hypocrisy, all of it. Look, there's no one here that should be struggling biologically with where you're at. I'm not making light of it. It's very simple. Everybody do this with me. Look down. Look up. You know what you are biologically. Praise God. <laughs> all right? That's done. No, I'm, I'm not making light of it. I'm being real. Biologically, God created you in his creation before the very foundations were when he knit you in your mother's womb. He laid this down. And it's done. It's settled. 
You can't come back and change it. You can't manipulate it. You can't do any of it. You just figured it out. And now they're trying to take our middle schoolers and just twist and lie. We need to guard the mind and the heart. It's not enough they're just here on Wednesdays and Sundays. Are you opening the Bible in your homes with your children, with your grandchildren? Are you reading the word of God to them? Are you protecting them from the deception to come? It's already here, friends. That's why I'm so thankful for his word. It draws us in. It, 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 it makes sure that we don't get off. Now, he, he turns around and he, he, back in verse 22, he says, you abhor idols. Do you, do you rob temples? You know, what seems to be implied here that the Jew may be what? Profiting from dishonest practices connected with idolatry. He's, he's talking about hypocritical, hypocritical practices. Where did we see this practice in the gospel? Well, I think of Jesus when he went into the temple and what did he do? He overturned a table. Why did he do that? What were they doing? They had made, their house, made God's house a den of thieves. Well, let's think about that for a minute. Who was profiting from that? It was Caiaphas. Why, we covered that when we were in the gospel. Why was it Caiaphas profiting? Because you paid 10 times the normal cost for a lamb or something that you were going to sacrifice without blemish than if you were just 30 minutes or 30 miles outside of Jerusalem like that. You would have paid 10 times less. You come in, you buy it in the temple. I understand there's a service and there's a convenience and there's an increased cost. I get some of that 10 times. It was said that he was made a millionaire overnight, a million dollars every year he was making just on the temple processing of all the animals and everything, just on that money he was making on the difference there. Now do you know why? He says, you abhor idols, do you rob temples? Verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, Paul reminds the Jews specifically the religious leaders. Again, I don't want to make this just about the Jew. I know God specifically says the Jew here, but, but religious, anybody in religion here? Not here, but in general. That God said in the Old Testament that the failure of the Jew to obey the law causes the Gentiles to be blasphemed or profane God. Is this new? Turn in your Old Testaments to Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going to look at verse 22. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is not a new teaching this is not a new prescription. God had already reminded the Jews that it said it and that their failure to obey would cause the Gentile to be, um, to blaspheme or profane God. That's exactly what it would do. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for the holy name's sake but for my holy name's sake, excuse me, which you have profaned, first time we see that word, among the nations, wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned, a second time we see it, among the nations, which you have a third time profaned in the midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. We see a similar sediment from God in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 4. We see it again in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. This is what Paul was warning. This is what he was saying. When you begin to follow after works or things of Jesus plus something else, you actually end up bearing witness to the blasphemy to the Gentile, to those that are unbelievers, to those at that time that didn't see, that wouldn't hear, that you end up drawing people 
Is it to God or away from God? You're drawing them where? Away from Jesus. You're actually blaspheming his name. Why? Well, look today. Look at Israel. Are God's chosen people his chosen people? Of course he is. Of course they are. That doesn't change and won't ever change. Jeremiah 31, 31. There's a promise to come for that, a new covenant for the Jews. The covenant you and I already partake of, that new covenant. But what, what, is, he, what is he saying here? He, he's warning them. He says, when you draw anything, whether I don't care of the religion or the tradition, when you do that, you're drawing it away from me when it's simply about faith. It's about Jesus. We just sang this morning, our worship, it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. But is it really? Is it really all about Jesus for you? Have you, have you made that decision in your heart? Have you locked that down? Or is it Jesus plus something? Because if there's any room or any morsel of truth to that, you stand guilty before God. Because it's not by faith then. It's by works. That's important. We need to examine our hearts. It's only by faith that we may be justified. Well, let's look at verse 25. For circumcision, now he's building on this. For circumcision is indeed profitable. That's the outward act, right? Uh, part of the Abrahamic covenant, what they would do is, uh, as a believer or God-chosen people, you were to be circumcised, okay, is indeed profitable if you, what? Keep the law. Circle that. But if you, see, he says, if, I'm so glad he doesn't say, you know, which God would never, because he's not obviously a liar. He couldn't. He's, he's absolute. He's immutable. His word is perfect and absolute. But aren't you glad it doesn't say when you, no, 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 you can't. If, if, circle that. If you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. I, I don't know exactly how you do that. But therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? I'm talking about the physical aspect of that. What is he talking about here, Lowe? Is he talking about the physical or the spiritual? The spiritual, right? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? He's laying it down hot. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is an outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. He goes right back to it. He's going right back to the source of the issue for the person that's religious. It's what are they doing? And what can they do? It's all about their service to God rather than God's coming to serve them as Lord and Savior, right? For salvation, I'm talking about. He gave us as an example. Do you know how many people struggle with this today? How many people struggle with, with being set free, but then they put themselves back under a law? Well, pastor, I, I, that, that must just be a modern thing. No, really? Follow, Jew, follow the, the Jews back when they were Judaizing, Judaizing Paul on his first, second, and third missionary journeys. Every time he would go and plant a new work, what would they turn around and do? They'd come around and they'd start Judaizing, saying, you need circumcision. You need the law. You can't be saved. It's so much so that God literally, it got to the point where God says, you know, he put it on the heart of James and the council to meet. He sent Paul. Paul started communicating it, Acts chapter 15. And they got together and says, you know what? We're going to settle this one for once and for all. God, what would you have? 
And God spoke through the Holy Spirit to James and the council in their hearts. And he said, look, it's very, very simple. I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say it's very, very simple, but it is. He says, keep yourself from anything that's been what? You know, given to an idol at a temple, meat like that. Keep yourself something that's been sacrificed to a false idol. Okay, check. Right? But at that day, remember, you went to the temple and that's where the sort of butcher was. Okay, check. Keep yourself from anything sexually immoral. I think we all understand that. Okay, check. And what was the third thing? From blood, right? From anything, don't even, you don't have to tell me that twice. I'm not, I'm not looking about drinking blood. You know, that's why it was so difficult for the early disciples when Jesus Christ said, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. They were like, what? what? They didn't understand the spiritual aspect of what God, it was all of him. It was all consuming. There wasn't room for anything else. Again, friends, do you know how many people struggle with this today? They, they, they've made it something else. Why? Well, I, I like the smell. I like when we do this. I like, what, I like that. And we add these little things over and over and over again. I was one of those people. I could tell you, it's, it's so diabolical because I never saw it. It wasn't intentional in my heart. It never was. God, God be the witness to that. It was never intentional in my heart. I didn't do those things to detract. But as I began to understand them, when I really was honest with myself, I was in some ways trying to appease or, or earn or, or, or strive for something with God that, I, that God had already given me through grace. And I was taking that perfect gift of grace and I was mocking it because I was adding to it. Now, I, I wouldn't mock it intentionally. Like, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, a heathen. I wasn't coming out and, you know, verbally mocking it or assaulting it. But in my heart, my heart was betraying me. My emotions were betraying me because I would see these things and I would think if I did this, well, then certainly I'd have favor with God. That's how I grew up. You know, it was different for me. And I'm not saying everybody, please. Again, everybody grows up differently. You can be in a denomination and never have that experience. That wasn't my experience. And that's no denomination's fault. That was my own heart. And, and I'm honest before you this morning to say, that can happen anywhere. Anywhere where you allow a religion and the works of a religion to try to compromise what God has done through faith and faith alone. He, he's making this so foundational because he knows it's the root where everything begins. It begins when that compromise happens. It is so subtle and it is so sneaky and diabolical that next thing you know, you are trusting in your own ability to walk out your faith, to stand strong, to protect your family, fill in the blank. It happens. We never intentionally set out for it, but we replace it. We replace it that way because we begin to trust in what we can see, touch, and feel or experience. That's why I said walk by promise and not by understanding. Lean not on understanding in all your ways you should acknowledge him and he will do what? He will direct your paths. It wasn't what you could see, Proverbs 3. It wasn't what you could see or not see. But that's what it does when we take on a legalism. It's our way of meddling. It's our way of extrapolating, of getting in there and trying to, to somehow touch it and, and be a part of it and work it. And God is simply saying, lay it down. I don't want anybody burdened by that. He says, my yoke is easy. What yoke are you picking up? I didn't ask you to pick that yoke up. 
He says, my yoke is easy. He says, you come unto me. I don't, I don't know if this is for somebody here this morning. I don't know if there's somebody on the radio or in the way that, that has maybe been struggling with never feeling like they're good enough to come to God. Like they're always feeling like something's missing and no matter what they've done, they can never earn God's favor. Friend, I want to tell if this is you and you're hearing this today, whether you're here, that is not the case. God loves you right where you are. He loved you not because of your sin, but in spite of your sin. He loved you for who you were because he created you. He doesn't love the sin. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. So much so that he died for you and didn't wait for you to arrive to get saved, but he saved you in the mire. He saved you in the depths and he redeemed you and pulled you out of it. And he set you free, free indeed. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a gospel of perfect love. Anything else is a perversion and a twisting of the gospel. Well, again, for the Jew, think about this. That's what Paul's talking about. They believe because they were descendant of Abraham, proven by the circumcision that they were automatically saved. By the way, Abraham was a Gentile. He was the father of the Jews, but let's make sure we get that accurate. He was a Gentile. The Jew believed that his circumcision guaranteed his salvation. And again, we talked about it on a Wednesday in the book of Leviticus. Certainly Dr. McMillan explained some of the benefits of circumcision. Obviously in, you know, the 1300s when you had the Black Plague, not a single Jew do we have that was recorded ever was afflicted with the Black Plague. Because of what? They had the law. And under the law, there were hygiene practices, washing, even before we had microbiology to understood what that meant and why it killed germs and all that stuff. So there were benefits, right? Uh, eight times less to contract HIV AIDS for someone who's circumcised compared to not being circumcised. They did that study in Africa. Okay? The, the, there are benefits, but that's not what Paul's talking about here physically. He's talking about the spiritual application, Right? Barclay, a scholar, says, in Paul's day, some rabbis taught that Abraham sat at the entrance of hell and made certain that none of his circumcised descendants went there. Some rabbis also taught God will judge the Gentiles with one measure and the Jews with another, and all Israelites will have a part in the world to come. That is not scriptural. That's adding to the word of God. When you teach the rabbis, as they would teach in that day, that somehow Abraham is sitting there, clearly we read in the Gospels, in the Bible, that there's a divide, a chasm, which no one can cross. And in that chasm, you had Father Abraham, if you would, on one side, remember, Lazarus in his bosom? And then you had, obviously, the man that was rich. He says, oh, if I could just have a drink. You're familiar with the the story, okay, the account. Well, they couldn't cross it. It wasn't like Abraham could go. There is no, I mean, they made a movie about it, What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams several years ago. It was great from an artistic perspective. Is what I mean, the colors and the vibrancy of what heaven may be like. But theologically, it was junk. I mean, it was absolutely junk. I mean, you look, the idea that your wife, in this case, would, was uh, tormented and therefore with anxiety and ended up in hell and you were, were going to somehow go to hell to save your wife? What blasphemy? Do, do you see that? But people won't call it that. People won't call it blasphemy, blasphemy. But that's what it was. There is no such thing. When the rabbis were teaching this very same thing, were they not guilty of blasphemy? That God's faith was enough? The faith in Jesus Christ was enough? That's what we see here. Circumcision or baptism or any ritual in itself doesn't save anyone. Did you know the Egyptians? They used to circumcise their young men. 
It didn't draw them to God or his covenant, did it? They weren't saved. Even in Abraham's day, Ishmael, he was the son of the flesh, right? Was circumcised, but it didn't make him a son of the covenant, did it? No. So Paul rightly answers that it's irrelevant. You know, any outward action is irrelevant when it comes to being saved or justification that way. And again, this isn't a new teaching. Look in your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Turn your pages to the Deuteronomy chapter 10 in your Bible. Go to your left. The law of Moses itself teaches this principle. Not a new teaching. They were to understand this. We're to understand this, friends, so that we can help others that may not know, so we can speak truth into other people's lives and set them free with the gospel of Christ. This should be an encouragement. We should be rejoicing here this morning because of what God's doing, or what he did, excuse me. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff no longer, stiff-necked no longer. What was he talking about? He's talking about a, a circumcision of heart. There's no golden ticket. Little Charlie missed out. There's no golden ticket in this way, right? There's no ritual. It's a relationship with Christ. It's not a religion. And in verse 26, it says, Therefore, if, again, circle that, an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, if a Gentile were to keep those righteous requirements of the law, what would happen? Would would he be justified? Yes. His conscience would excuse him, right, that way. Romans 2.15 explained that. In other words, if God saw that in a person's life by keeping the law, if they were able to perfectly do it, you don't think God would see a circumcised and righteous heart? God sees everything. It doesn't need to be an outward sign because God sees the matters of the heart. That's what he looks upon. And, and again, and remember, it's not a comparison to another man's standard. Who's it a comparison to? God's righteous and perfect standard. That's what it looks like. That's why Paul conclusively says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there is none righteous. No, not one. He's not grammatically challenged. There is none righteous. No, not one. In Romans 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, he's tying it all together. In verse 27, he says, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? So here's your answer to what about the guy in the island? What about your guy, you know, in Africa or somewhere that that has not heard the gospel of Christ? Right? What's he saying? He says, God's going to judge the individual based on what he's heard and how he's lived it. And how he's lived it. That's the difference. So what's that mean? That means all of humanity is guilty before God because no one's perfectly lived out the gospel that God has given them in their consciousness. You know, no one's perfectly responded to what we know about God through creation, as Romans 1.20 said. So if your conscience wasn't enough, creation's right there to go, hey. And even the word of God, does it not do the same thing as we'll read in Romans 3.3? Therefore, we can understand that there's no such thing as an innocent man or woman or a native or however you want to say it. So this idea, it, it, it's demonic to say, oh, well, I'm a good person. Therefore, God must surely show favor on me. The ideology is all wrong. The concept, the the structure of that concept, the the methodology in which you're solving that equation with, you have the wrong formula. 
The formula is not based on you. It's based on Christ because you can't measure up to Christ and his perfection. And he's demonstrated that it's given freely through grace. Now, you know, it could be argued two better questions. Who here has heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejected it? My answer today would be respond for the day is the day of salvation, right? Second, who here has been commanded by God to be obedient, to go preach the good news of Christ, maybe to those in Africa or to your own neighborhood? All of your hands should be up. Matthew 28, 19, it's the Great Commission. Today is the day of obedience. Amen? Verse 29, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So he points us back to all outward signs of religion may earn us praise from men, but they're not going to earn us praise from God. The evidence of our righteousness with God is not contained by an outward sign or work. The evidence is found in the work of God in the heart, which shows what? It's fruit. We see the fruit that way. So now we're going to turn our, our attention to chapter 3. We're going to really do verses. We're going to go through verses 1 through 8, and we'll close there today on verse 8, which will probably be in about another 30, 45 minutes. But uh, no. The, the righteousness of God's judgment. It might be. Some of you are like, yeah, it's possible with him going. Um, verse 1. What advantage, then, has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? That's a good question. As he just went through and he looked at the Jew, and he was talking about the religion, he says, so what's the point, then? You know, is it profit anything to be God's chosen people or Jewish that way? He says, what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says, chiefly because to them were committed what? The oracles of God, the written revelation of God, right? So Paul's methodically explaining here that to be God's chosen nation, while it's not going to save you, because look at verse 11 again in chapter two. What did he say there? Let's read it together on three. One, two, three. For there is no partiality with God. God is not a respecter of persons, praise the Lord. He's a righteous judge. He's the just and the justifier. So here we see what? He's, he's telling us that, that being God's chosen nation had nothing to do with Israel. It had everything to do with being God and who he was and for his namesake. And he shows no partiality. So, so what is he saying? He says, much in every way. Paul knows that there are many advantages to the Jewish people in particular. He entrusted them with what? What is the first thing we see here? The oracles of God. What is that? That's what you have in your hands. That's the written revelation of God. Before Jesus Christ physically walked this earth, manifested here. He gave Jewish people his word. And that's a, an indescribable gift, what you have. You have an indescribable gift in your hand right now. Paul in chapter 9, verse 4, and you can turn over there for a moment if you'd like to, he's going to expand on this, the advantage of explaining, explaining what Israel had. He's going to say that the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises were all given to those as God's chosen people, Israel. And it's a blessing. And Paul explains, you and I, friends, 2,000 years later, what a great privilege being God's people. We're entrusted with his word too. You have the living word of God. You have the entire counsel of God. You didn't just have the Old Testament. You have the entire counsel of God before you to know God's character, his heart, his love. Let's look at verse three. For what? Now, important in this chapter, he's going to go and he's going to now address the skeptic. 
He's going to give two particular questions to the skeptic out there by reasoning and logic. One, he's going to respond to the skeptic with a direct answer and saying, look, according to your logic, you're going to say that if by my unrighteousness and the sovereignty of God, then God's going to do whatever God's going to do. And whether I'm unrighteous or righteous, I'm a pawn in God's hands. Therefore, how could God give me this wrath or pour this wrath out on me, right? Logically, it sounds good at first. Until you fill, you know, you put in the other part of the bait as part of the equation there, right? You, done, you do the regression correct. What is he telling us here if we're looking at this? First of all, this is why philosophy of man is dangerous. And God's word is perfect and pure. And we shouldn't eisegete or read in philosophies of men. Because when you do that, you can undermine the very foundation of God's word by adding in something that, that God never intended nor, you know, shouldn't be there. But man's added because he thinks it makes sense or it's logical. God says man's ways are not his ways. Amen. So what am I talking about? Because some of you may not be tracking where I'm going. You've heard of Arminianism and Calvinism. Those are philosophies, philosophies of men. They've been added into scripture by those that innocently sometimes take and develop suppositions, presuppositions on where they'll land. My job is not to turn around and talk about the philosophies. I I don't really care about the philosophies. I care about God's word. You want me here to teach the word of God, not man's philosophy. You can go get that at some high school or college somewhere. What God says here in his word, according to this, is he's saying in chapter three, if you believe in God's sovereignty to the point where you are pawn in God's hand and therefore you turn around and say, well, look, what's it matter? I can do what evil I want. I can do anything I want. Ultimately, it's going to bring God to glory anyway because he's going to see in my unrighteousness his righteousness because it's going to be contrasted. So therefore, what's the difference anyway? I'm a pawn in God's hand. What's the problem with that formula? You let it play out. Play it out to the nth degree. It's always good to do that hermeneutically with any theological principle. When we play that out, where do we end up? I can do whatever I want. I can sin. I can do anything because it's indifferent to God because ultimately God's sovereign and God's God. So I can live my life however I want and do whatever I want. Is that the gospel of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Certainly not. It's the antithesis of that. It's a twisting. It's turning it over. What is missing from that equation? The sovereignty of God is not complete without the, what is the other thing we call? What do we do? We have a direct response to God's invitation. And what do we call that? You and I had a choice, and that choice is called free will. And when you put that correct formula together that God created, his sovereignty and the free will, you end up with the perfect equation, as God can only do it perfectly. Because what it speaks is this, God is sovereign. But when you have free will, whose choice is it still ultimately to respond to God? It's yours. It's yours. And therefore, if God pours out the wrath, as, a do, as what? Why does he, we read that in chapter two, to do what? To draw them back to repentance. But if God does that, is he wrong to pour out wrath to those that are the unjust and unrighteous and choose to reject the living God? No. Would it be wrong if it was only sovereignty and you didn't have free will? Because then God would be doing what? He would be turning around and judging people for something they didn't have a choice to do. God's a righteous judge. He can't do that. He's immutable. He's absolute. He's perfect. Do you see the error of the equation? And I didn't even have to get into philosophy with you. I could just use God's word. And just by using God's word, when you play that out, you can't have it. They're mutually exclusive. You can't have accountability and free will, or should I say God's sovereignty and free will, one without the other. 
Because you end up with a broken equation that ultimately leads you to believe you can do whatever you want, anytime you want, and God's indifferent. And certainly we know that not to be the truth, and that's not the gospel of Christ. Okay, so that's sort of the introduction of what we're going to go through with Paul, and we're going to read it pretty quick here. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, if they turn around and don't believe, does that change what happens with God? Does that change the effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man be a liar as it's written. So like Paul states, someone might be asking this question this morning. Why do some believe and why don't some believe? We've already talked about creation bearing witness, 120. Conscience bearing witness, 215. We even just saw the word of God, 3-3, right? And does that change in any way God's faithfulness? The fact that the Jewish people as a whole at that point had rejected the gospel did not in any way mean that God wasn't faithful, right? You with me? That doesn't change God's faithfulness because someone chooses not to believe or they reject God. What does that say? Does that speak to also the vanity of their heart? That while God's word goes forward, is there not power in the word? Is it the person speaking the word? We already covered that in chapter one in Romans where he says there's power in the word of God or power in his gospel, right? Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. It's not the man that speaks the word. The word is the power. The word is what points you to the power. You like PowerPoint? That's what points you to the power. The word of God. Better than any PowerPoint technology you can use. No offense for our technologists. But, all right. But he, what, that's what he's saying here. He's saying no, because free will means God's work was with without effect. Yes, it's true. It, can, it cannot have an effect because a heart cannot be right. A heart can be hardened. People intellectually can think they know more than they do. We call that arrogance and pride. And they can have a, a vessel that's so full that anytime you try to pour something in it, you know what it does? It simply runs over. And what can we do? We step back. We just step back. It's not for us to fix. God didn't call us to micromanage. God told us to step back and pray that that vessel would be, we use the term broken. But Lord, break us. What, is, what happens when you break a vessel? It's full. What's in it? Where does it go? Runs out. And what happens? Boy, that vessel is wide open, isn't it? And if you pour the word and you pour truth and righteousness, it's reshaped. It's perfect. That's why we're not to... That's why James says, counted all the joy through the trial, the various trials. At first you thought he was maniacal, but now you see his wisdom, that it's through the, hum the humility of it all. Well, that's what he's speaking here when he says, without effect. But he says in verse 4, certainly not. Let God be true and every man be a liar. Paul reminds that God will be justified in all his actions. In the end, it demonstrates that even in our unrighteousness, somehow God is proclaimed, you know, and, and glorified, even if it's only in judgment, because God's a righteous judge and he has to judge what's wrong, what's evil. And I, I would suggest to you, it's a self-centered notion to think that those who reject the gospel and deny Jesus, Jesus Christ somehow negate any effect of God. I mean, isn't that so very self-centered to think that somehow you are going to, to do that? I mean, God's word bears witness. As a matter of fact, Lucifer, isn't that what he was guilty of? pride, to think that he was like the God most high in Isaiah 14. You see, his love and redemption remain available until your last breath. That's why the last two things to fail before you die are your heart and your mind. 
He gives every opportunity for those to believe in their heart and to confess with their mouth or their mind that Jesus Christ is Lord and their Savior. That's why it's the last two things to fail, generally speaking. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, which is where Paul wrote Romans from, Paul writes to God, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let God be true and every man be a liar. God's truth is perfect. He can't lie. It's immutable. It's absolute. It's his word. It's himself. None of it can be wrong. We're to believe in God even when nobody else does. Friends, you really need to settle that in your heart in the days we're living. Even if, ever, even if there was one person in the sanctuary this morning, would I not come and teach the word of God? It doesn't matter. First service can be full. Second service can be half. It doesn't matter. We're never to walk away from Christ. Even unto death. Settle that in your heart. Even unto death. You never will deny the Lord Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. It is the power unto salvation. Faith in Christ and Christ alone. That's important because people are teaching another doctrine today. You see, he's the only begotten son of the father. He, he took the sin upon himself at Calvary to redeem those who believe in faith. That they're forgiven, justified, and therefore saved by the blood of Christ in his new covenant. To those that would believe in Jesus Christ, if, that, if that's you, if you heard that today, and maybe there's no one here, maybe this is for the radio, this goes on the radio, maybe this is for the website. If you heard that, call the church. We want to get a Bible in your hand. We want to talk to you. We want to encourage you. We want to disciple you. We don't want anything from you. We don't want your money. We want you to know what Christ wants to do in your heart. He wants to set you free. Hence, Paul quotes Psalm 51.4, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Look at verse five, but if you are unrighteous, demonstrate, but excuse me, if you're unrighteous, demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. I already sort of talked about what Paul was thinking there, that if you play it out to the nth degree, it ultimately makes you come to the realization I can do whatever I want. And he says, I speak, you know, I speak of a man. So is God unjust, inflict wrath? No. God is just and he inflicts wrath on those that reject his gospel. To, why? So that he can draw them to repentance, to a right heart, so they would believe and be saved. Because he wants everyone to be in eternity. Think about Judas for a minute. If you played this out, Judas Iscariot. Remember the gospel? Judas, Judas betrayed Jesus. Can you hear Judas make a case? Lord, I know that I betrayed Jesus, but you used it for good. In fact... If I hadn't done what I did, Jesus, Jesus, you wouldn't have even gone to the cross at all. What I did actually helped fulfill the scripture. How can you judge me at all? Could you picture a Judas saying that? Why? Because he's making a logical argument on, based on the sovereignty of God without free will. But here's God's response as we've been reading in Romans. Uh, may I say my version of God's response? Apologize, not thus saith the Lord. Now, he would say, yes, God, or he, used your wickedness, but it was still your wickedness, your choice. There was no good or pure motive in your heart at all. Because remember, Jesus told us it's about the motives. Your conscience has betrayed you even right now. 
It is no credit to your account that God brought you, that brought good out of your evil. You stand guilty before the living God. Can you imagine having to hear that? That's what happens to the skeptic when they begin begin to believe the lies of the devil, the lies from the pit of hell. They sound good, they're half-truths, they sound logical, but they're full lies. They're full lies from the pit of hell. Friends, you're going to encounter that from an apologetic perspective. You talk to your friends, you talk to your friends, and you tell them about the gospel, you tell them about Jesus Christ. They're going to give you 101 reasons of logically why. I want you to say, Jesus loves you right where you are. The gospel's not about who you are. It's about what he did and who he is. Get over yourself. That's real love. That's real love to say that to somebody. Get over yourself. Jesus loves you right where you are. He wants to set you free, man. He wants to heal you. He wants to bring you. But you got to receive him. You got to believe him. Nobody's going to force you. He's a gentleman. He doesn't force himself. Let God be true and every man a liar. And then he says, I speak as a man. What do you think that means? Is he, is he saying here that he's writing without inspiration of the Holy Spirit or without apostolic authority? As Paul would say, certainly not. Right? That's not what he's saying here. What he's explaining is only as a man, as a fallen man, would anyone dare to question God's perfect justice. The brazenness and the presumption of God's goodness is exploited by the skeptic in their self-absorbed heart. That's what we see here when the skeptic brings it. It's a self-absorbed heart and it's a brazenness, a foolishness that they bring forward like that. We're gonna close with this. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also so judged as a sinner? And why not say, Let us do evil that good may come. As I said, that's where the skeptic will take it. As we are slanderously reported, so Paul himself was accused of of these things because they were Judaizers, and some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. So Paul again says, certainly not in verse 6, for Paul and his Roman readers were told that the judgment day was coming when some will be acquitted and some will be condemned. That's the truth of the gospel as well. And notice here that there's no contestation to that. Notice that even in the culture of that time, even in the heathen or the Greek or the Roman or the Jew, nobody came back and said, what do you mean? There's going to be a judgment? Think about that. Even the enemy knows there's coming a time. That's not questioned. That's not even questioned. It's not even challenged here. He understood. He didn't contest that point with the culture. Both Jew and Gentile would be judged. For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, in verse 7, why am I also still judged? Again, Paul reestates the objection of the skeptic. You know, if God will glorify himself through my lie, how can he judge me since I'm indirectly increasing his glory by lying? I mean, but, but this is the skeptic. This is the mind of the skeptic. And he says, let us do evil that good may come. That's where you end up. It's a perversion of God's doctrine of justification by faith. If you logically play that, let's just sin as much as as we can and and God will be glorified even more. I mean, do you see the perversion of this? This is the antithesis of the gospel of Christ. 
Paul preached forgiveness. He preached salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not works, lest any man would boast. Most preaching today is also far from the true gospel because it's Jesus plus something. We need to have ears sensitive to that because as we live in these last days, as I said, there were going to be you know, look, there's a Messiah over there. There's a Messiah over here. Look, this is great. Hey, there's feathers falling from the sky. Hey, this is happening over in this church. Hey, and we're going to, oh, let's go. We're right. What? What? Is not his word perfect and pure? Does he not transform through the very word of God our, our feeble and humble hearts if they're available to him? Do we need to chase after man's programs and emotions and, and entertainment? We need to be running in the opposite direction. And I know I'm speaking to, you know, you guys are, you've been with us for years. Many of you know, yes, yes, pastor, we know. But you, you don't realize because you've been here for years and what have you, you don't know what it is like out there at other churches. The people come in and they come into counseling. And You're not going to believe what I'm seeing. You know, we're, we're waiting for the special dust of the angel, the, 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 the trinkle of the angel dust that's falling upon us. What? Oh yeah, our pageant's so great. Well, you've got to see this pageant. It's just anointed and it sets everything off. Look, our pageant this year, if we have, is going to be five for seven kids singing, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. It's not about entertainment. It's not about a program. It's about the truth of the gospel. And anything that distracts you from that distracts you from God. And until we get that settled in our hearts, and until we make the nation, the world, the universe, until we make them understand that, they will fall for the same diabolical twisting of the gospel as Lucifer and all of his demonic you know, realm is out there sowing these lies. People are going to believe them. We need to get the word out apologetically so that people can see and eyes can be opened wide. Paul closes with this. He says, their condemnation is just. Or I'll close with this, should I say. Paul won't even answer the absurd twisting of the gospel here. He won't even answer with it. He simply says, those who teach such things were accused Paul. They accused Paul of teaching them. He says, their condemnation is just. God rightly condemns anyone who teaches or believes such a thing. Three things God is making clear to us. And, and, and just the chronology and the way he did this all the way up into chapter three. I hope you've been tracking and taking notes with us. Twisting the glorious gospel and the free gift of God in Jesus takes the most beautiful gift of God. It perverts it and it mocks it. That's what is happening, deliberate or unintentional. Either way, it's happening when you do that. When you add religion or something else on top of that. Now, the twisting is so sinful that Paul saves it for last. What do you mean, saves it for life? Well, just let's recount real quick three things. It's beyond the depravity of the unbeliever given up to a debased mind. We read that in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, if you're tracking with us, right? That was the first thing we read. What was it now beyond? It's beyond the hypocrisy of the moralist and the self-righteous. The second thing that he brought up, and that was in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And then finally, the third thing before this, he says, is it's beyond the false confidence of the religious or the Jew, right? Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. He says it's the most wicked and despicable thing to twist the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
is the most despicable thing that can be done. So as we, as we stand, as we stand, let's stand here. As we stand, as we're going to pray, I want us to just take a moment to realize what Christ has just spoken to our heart. That Jesus plus anything is not of the Lord, number one. Number two, we don't have to chase after false messiahs or works. We need to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior alone. And third, we need to stand. We need to stand in the gap when other people are preaching a false gospel. When they're preaching a gospel of works or a gospel of anything else that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, we don't turn around and compromise and say, well, to entice that person because I really want them to get saved or I really want them to be part of church with me or I really want them to do, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, right? We don't compromise. We stay right where we're at. We stay in the word and we trust that God will do the changing in the heart and draw that person to where he needs to be or she needs to be. Is our God not faithful, friends? Let God be true and every man be a liar, just as he says. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We went through quite a bit, um, Lord God, and, and I pray anything that would be of me, God, you would, you would just fade it away, but if all of it be from you, Lord. I pray you seal it into the heart of the believer, God. Um, as we are, we know, Lord, we're living in these last days, and Jesus, we know that you're going to use this here this morning as we come into our interactions this week Lord God, we know you're going to create divine appointments. God, I pray even right now that we would be sensitive to those movings of your spirit, that Lord, as we might be walking and somebody comes up and Lord, maybe we're going to meet the unrighteous. Lord, maybe, maybe we'll meet the self-righteous. God, maybe we'll meet the, um, you know, the moralist or even the religious. Or God, maybe even the skeptic or atheist. God, may we present your truth just as you laid it out here that when we follow and prove out any of these false lies, they all lead to a false doctrine. They don't lead to you, Jesus. May we rest on your truth. May we trust in you alone by faith. Will you give us a boldness this morning? That as you would send us, Lord, that we would be faithful to respond. That we would be faithful to stand in the gap that we would be faithful to speak the word your spirit has to say. And we pray this and ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, by your power, your blood, and authority. In the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people prayed, amen, amen.